1: I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. No-knock warrants, chokeholds, and kneeling on the neck have led to fatal police encounters. Think Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, George Floyd. It's a long, sad, and disturbing list. And even when these incidents don't turn deadly, thousands of Americans are injured by cops each year. Often, it's from the use of excessive force. But what leads to excessive force? Training, culture, and implicit bias play a role, And the facts that the tactics I just mentioned remain legal in many jurisdictions. And think about this. There are more than 18,000 police departments in the U.S., but there are no uniform set of procedures for stops. So what are some possible changes to policing that could keep people safer? Charles D. Hayes is a former Dallas police officer and author of the book Blue Bias. An ex-cop turned philosopher examines the learning and resolve necessary to end prejudice in policing. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Also with us, Echo Yanka, professor of law at Cardozo School of Law in New York City. He focuses on criminal law, political theory, and policing practices. Welcome back, Echo. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Let me start with you, Charles. Is is there a culture of excessive force in policing?
2: Absolutely. Being a police officer is a very challenging occupation emotionally. You see human behavior at its worst on a regular basis. There are physiological changes in officers, and uh, their amygdala can grow larger and they become hypersensitive to insult or having their authority challenged. Behavioral scientists often call it a sense of entitlement. I saw that look on the face of the officer that had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Uh, he looked totally comfortable with what he was doing. I saw that as a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm.
1: Professor, I'll ask you the same question, uh, you know, as we as we look at everything that's happened over this summer. I mean, even here in Chicago, we saw an 18 year old protester, Miracle Boyd, have her front teeth knocked out by an officer at a protest. Obviously, I can't breathe with George Floyd. What is there a culture of excessive force when it comes to policing?
3: Absolutely. And, and I think it's twofold. Right. One is about how we uh, operationalize policing. Police are taught to dominate every situation. Right. They're taught that every situation could go deadly and they're taught to use shock and awe. And I use that on purpose because police are taught in this kind of highly militaristic way. That is also paired with the fact that, as Mr. Hayes just said, police officers get used to being treated with huge amounts of deference. And so when you're given the training that you should dominate, and then you allow your ego to think not only should you dominate, but you have the right to and people should defer to your authority. It's a very volatile mix.
1: The other part, too, Professor, because there's so much made of police killings. We've, we, this obviously makes dominates the headlines. But injuries play a big part, too, because we a lot of the times there will be just when we talk about handcuffs or we talk about uh, how you subdue uh, uh, someone who uh, is resisting. Th- those kind of things lead to injuries, and, and
3: we rarely hear about that. It's an incredibly important conversation, and it's, it's something we should talk much, much more about. It would be as though if we went to war and we only counted the dead, right? We have the same kind of moral mistake there, as though everybody who came home without arms and legs weren't casualties of war as well. Look, I agree with Mr. Hayes that policing is a very difficult job, and I, I'm thrilled when I get to talk to police officers and police chiefs so that we can think about ways of making it safer for both sides. But it is true that we have to take a full account of how policing goes wrong. And that's not just in body bags. Every kid who's slammed against a wall, every kid who's slammed on the hood of a car, Somebody who has a knee ground into their back or their face pushed into their pavement, that sticks with them. And that sticks with the people who see that happen. And that destabilizes community relationships, in particular when you are part of a community that feels over police, when you see another black kid being manhandled by the police. It's not just the deaths that undermine our ability to police. It's our everyday violence as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Charles, I want to bring you back in the conversation. I know there are thousands of police departments across the U.S., but there's no uniformity when it comes to police protocol for using force. Why is that? Why, why isn't there one standard, federal standard, that says this is how you should use force at a police stop?
2: These agencies are, are independent. It's totally uh, left upon them to come up with their own. There are low-income communities all over this country where a double standard in policing has been in existence from the very first time the first officer put on a uniform. Actually, it's a tradition.
1: Charles, it's been a couple of years since you've been a police officer, but when you were a police officer, things like chokeholds were the standard. I guess the question is just about standard procedure when it comes to arrest. I mean, a lot has happened since uh, the 60s and 70s when you were a police officer, but when you talk about the things that you would use, chokeholds and others, was there a standard uh, when it came to arrests?
2: In those days, chokehold was was standard. uh, We never gave a second thought.
1: Professor, when we talk about that, just this this idea that there's no uniformity, it it seems strange when we talk about a a world where we have a lot of regulations and and rules, and a lot of that does come from the federal government. When we're talking about independent
3: uh, police departments, when,
1: when did that happen? Why is that still the case?
3: Well, so this is deeply built into our constitution, right? So when you teach constitutional law, the powers that are left to the states or localities, we call them the police powers. And that includes everything. But the the point is that policing is such the archetype of independent local control that even things that aren't policing are called police powers, right? The police is the central example of what independent local control looks like in our law.
1: Charles, one thing you talk about uh, in the book is implicit bias. Uh, How does implicit bias lead directly into these instances of excessive use of force?
2: Bias is what brains do. It's not something unusual. We categorize and sort from the time we're toddlers until we die. I'm 77 years old. I grew up in a culture in which it was common for children to have good reasons to believe that most of the people that lived in nice houses were white, that nurses and teachers were nearly all women, and doctors and lawyers and people in professional occupations were almost all white men, and if you think that that attitude is not internalized by people growing up, uh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. the way bias works is you don't have to you don't have to hate you don't have to have animosity towards another group of people. All you have to do is see them as different enough to treat them differently, and that can make the difference in whether you you think that they're carrying a, a weapon or a cell phone.
1: Yeah, Professor, same question. I mean, when you hear that and you talk about implicit bias in policing, obviously that uh, has negative connotations. And, and and most of the time we think that's an individual choice. And and yeah. hear, Charles, it's that may not necessarily be the case.
3: Not only is it not individual, but we have to start thinking seriously about the fact that this is a historical choice. right? So if I told you, for example, that recently freed slaves— were loitering and were criminals and were not hardworking in 1875. You, know, you would think that's absurd. I mean, these are people who have been recently freed from chattel slavery. But one of the great new books, Stamped from the Beginning, which I recommend to all your listeners, is a book precisely about how we took Black people who had been recently freed and started calling them criminals, right? Because they were loiterers or because they were stealing or because they were dangerous. My point is, In American history, we have long decided that black people and black men are dangerous and criminal. And that's a story we've told ourselves for hundreds of years. And in the same way people then did not think they were making things up, there are people walking around today who say, I'm not biased. It's just black men commit more crimes. Mm. And they don't see the way this story has been created throughout our history.
1: Charles, you also write about an issue that I think is also at the core of this, which is authoritarian personalities. Uh, and how they're drawn to policing. How does that play into this picture, the idea of an authoritarian personality?
2: Well, law and order, I mean, order it means rules, and authoritarian personalities are just drawn to it. It just it feels right, and it's it enables them to, if they have contempt, to apply it to the people who think, they think deserve it. Mm-hmm.
1: And, Professor, does that resonate with you?
3: Yeah, I totally agree with Mr. Hayes, but I also think, again, we can't think of this as an accident. Police police departments know who they're hiring, right? Mr. Hayes will tell you many police departments, big, sophisticated ones, give psychological tests, right? And we sort for people who prefer uh, authoritarianism. We sort for people who are aggressive, and then we train them, and we tell them they have to dominate and that they have to be aggressive. And, you know, lots of these are good people who want to help. But when we sort for the most aggressive people and then we turn around when moments go out of control and say who could have seen this coming, we're ignoring that we're making social choices that lead to these results.
1: We see this a lot. And we saw this in the case in Kenosha with Jacob Blake and and Sandra Bland comes to mind as well, uh, where a police officer loses his temper within seconds because someone wouldn't follow the rules. The rules are broken. uh, An offender or, or someone who is a who is a citizen walks away. And that's not acceptable to the police. Now, Professor, is that because of the training? Is that because, like we're talking about, authoritarian personalities? What is it about the fact when, when faced with the idea that someone is, is not listening or disrespecting or, or possibly not following the quote unquote rules, that excessive force comes into play?
3: You're absolutely right. And we as citizens have to seize this back. In fact, those people are not breaking the rules. They're within their legal rights. To walk away from an officer. Look, officers want to be treated with respect like anybody else, and I believe in treating people nicely and, you know, like every parent, try to teach my kid to be polite. But the thing that police officers have grown too used to is not wanting respect, but wanting obsequiousness, right? When you ask Sandra Bland to put out a cigarette in her own car, That might be the polite thing to do, but you don't have the right to demand that. We have to re-instill a culture where police officers realize they're accountable to citizens. They're not owed obsequiousness by citizens, and in particular by Black, Hispanic, and other citizens who they think owe them genuflection.
1: And Charles, as a former police officer, when faced with someone who does break the rules or or like professors talking about, uh, you know, uh, may may not necessarily be polite. What was your course of action? Was it automatically the, the training to, to subdue the situation, to dominate the situation, and, and possibly use excessive force?
2: Absolutely. And it, it's a matter of what I was talking about earlier, about an officer who's who has that sense of an entitlement. You see an officer go ballistic with just the slightest provocation. It's a sign that they are overstressed. And if if police management is not obsessed with the idea of, of keeping excessive force from being used, it will get out of hand just by people naturally doing their job.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Professor Yanka, when, when we talk about this culture and, and we've uh, we've established that there's there's excessive force in, in policing, how do you change it? I mean, does it come down to training? Because it seems half of this conversation is about training, but the other is about just, as we talked about it, authoritarian personalities, implicit bias, uh, things that, yeah. that might be more human than they are about training. So how do we change this culture?
3: I think it's really hard. And We have to stop looking for silver bullets. We're going to have to fight this on all fronts. Mr. Hayes is absolutely right. We have to put police officers in positions to succeed. We have to cut down the stress on officers. We have to take care of our officers. We have to care about our officers. But we also have to let them know and let police chiefs know that they're accountable to citizens, right, not the other way around, that unions are accountable to citizens, not the other way around, And lastly, what I said last, we have to choose officers who get into this not to dominate, who don't just think service is, you know, uh, beating up bad guys, but who understand that service through violence is the last thing you do.
1: Right. And Charles, the book that you wrote, I mean, it it essentially is a guide for police officers from your experience being a police officer. What do you hope comes out of it when, when you're writing a guide for police officers as a former police officer?
2: Well, police officers need a big-picture perspective, an education that enables them to look at humanity from 30,000 feet so they don't become jaded and cynical by seeing behavior at its worst. That's what happened to me. I I experienced what you call burnout. I became so upset with domestic disturbance calls because they seemed so trivial and so infantile. I think the straw that broke the camel's back is I answered a call one day on Thanksgiving, and a lady was holding a pistol down to her side. She had just killed her husband over the correct temperature to cook a turkey. Now, if you don't have a very good education, which I didn't have at the time, uh, you tend to take those kind of things personal and become disgusted and mm. jaded and cynical, and you need a real significant liberal education to, in order to compensate for that. Mm.
1: I'll end the conversation here, Professor, just as we look at this and, and we try to, as police officers, uh, almost get on the defensive as we see what's happening this summer. How do you reach out? How do you start this conversation without it being political, without it being uh, demonized in any way?
3: I do think we have to avoid demonizing police officers. I have lots of friends who have steadied anger towards police officers, and I get that, but I also get why police officers feel under attack. But, you know, we do have to, I think, as I've said, choose officers at first who are coming in with the right attitude, who are coming in not indignant and superior. But we also have to teach officers the history of policing. I do agree with Charles Hayes. I don't think it'll solve everything. But police officers have to know that citizens are allowed to criticize you and criticize policing. And that's not a personal attack. I don't think you can avoid it being political, right? Politics is about how we govern ourselves. And policing is ultimately about how we govern and police ourselves. True. It should be political. Yeah.
1: Good point. Echo Yanka, law professor at Cardozo School of Law in New York. Charles D. Hay, former officer and author of Blue Bias, an ex-cop turned philosopher, examines the learning and resolve necessary to end prejudice in policing. Thanks to you both. Great conversation. Appreciate you coming on.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: And that's today's Reset. For the latest and most accurate local, national, and international news, keep it tuned to 915 WBEZ stream us 24-7 at WBEZ.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you right back here tomorrow for the weekly news rundown from Reset and WBEZ Chicago.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more